Good morning, everyone. It's really great to be here. We've been praying for you and thankful for Clay's faithfulness and your faithfulness to try and, you know, keep things going because uh, there's not too many good churches, you know. There's, we're kind of in a place where I think there's like 600 churches in the greater Louisville area, but a lot of times you can go to church after church and never hear the gospel. So it's a little distressing to think that most churches have abandoned the most central thing that we're supposed to focus on, which is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So I'm Pastor Jack from Anchor Bible Church, and you probably know that. I think I met you, most of you, already. But uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, and uh, I'm going to be heading to London this week, and so I'm going to be preaching on the services on both ends. And so we're getting kind of close to Good Friday, and this is kind of a good Good Friday sermon, and uh, it's a good precursor to... um, Resurrection Sunday, and it's just got some great stuff in here that deals with something that is kind of fun, um, and really one of the most often misquoted texts in all the Bible is found in Psalm 118, and we're going to be looking at it this morning as we consider a little portion of Psalm 118, a psalm of praise, of thanksgiving, worshiping God for His goodness. And it's the last psalm, Psalm 18 is, in what are called the Hillel Psalms, the Psalms of Praise that kind of span from Psalm 113 through 118. It's a group of psalms that some believe were written to be sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. So in Matthew 26, verse 30, it says, when the disciples celebrated the Passover with Jesus, right before Jesus' crucifixion, they sang a hymn, and it may very well be they sang Psalm 118, though we don't know, but it is one of the Hallel Psalms. It might be, but we can't be certain that they sang Psalm 118, because as we shall see, the themes in Psalm 118 fit exactly Jesus's death for us on the cross. So it may have related. Uh, You kind of see his triumphal entry in Psalm 118, his suffering and his death. But here is something that is interesting about Psalm 118, especially verse, um, what is it, uh, 24. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. People love to quote this verse. It's one of those verses that's almost like everybody is born having it memorized. You know, it's like, judge not, lest you be judged. Um, They just know it, you know, and it's so easy to just have it come out of your mouth. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You know, it's like, it's good. It's, it's, It's the Lord's day. And I think we've all heard that quoted. Maybe we ourselves have quoted that. Uh, to a friend or, um, you know, someday that uh, we're just happy to be alive, we're thankful to be saved, and so we're glad that God has made this day for us to live for Him and His glory. The problem is, is Psalm 118 verse 24 is not talking about that. Uh, It's not saying God created uh, every day and therefore we should rejoice in whatever day it might be. It's not a catch-all, be happy today because the Lord created it. 
Now, it is true that God creates every day. He sustains his creation every day. It is also true that every day is a good day to rejoice in the Lord. But it is not true that Psalm 118 verse 24 teaches us that God created every day and therefore we should rejoice in it. Soon after I preached Psalm 118 to my own congregation... I went to uh, a graduation ceremony, and um, the, the president uh, stood up there, and he said, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And he misquoted this verse right before everybody. And the question is, what is this verse talking about? You know, what's going on here in this text? Well, let's find out. Let me just read all of Psalm 118 so we can get some context, and then we're going to zero in on verses 22 to 24. So the psalmist reads, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. For my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can men do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They will surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You have pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has discipled me. Uh, disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, do save, we beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. You do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with the cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, and I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Pray with me, and we'll jump in. Father, we come before you now asking for your spirit to work in our hearts through your word 
that we might be impacted, that we might be challenged, that we might be changed and conformed more from one glory to the next into the image of Christ. We ask, Father, that as we look at this text that's often misquoted, we would see its true, clear meaning and its application to us as we seek to live for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so from Psalm 118, 22 to 24, I'm going to unravel three mysteries so you can understand this often misquoted text and why there is a day, a great day of rejoicing. First, we need to identify the cornerstone and the builders. Identify the cornerstone and the builders. If you look at verse 22, where we read, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. In ancient times, they didn't have laser levelers. Um, they didn't have, you know, really trick things that we have today to do construction. Usually, there was a large stone that was solid. They would car set it into the ground, pack it into the ground. They would then carve it into a 90-degree angle, shear it across on top, and that would be the cornerstone. And then all the measurements from the building would be taken from the cornerstone. Um, the rest of the building, either by trenches or a little crude pipes, they would level it all up so that all measurements using a little trig would be referenced from the cornerstone. It was the chief stone in the building. And here we are speaking of the stone, the chief cornerstone, which the builders rejected. The question is, okay, uh, thus we have this cornerstone, we have this chief cornerstone, and what is it? You know, what is it? In verse 22 of our text, it's a metaphor of a person, as we shall see, which the builders, um, another metaphor, um, as we shall see, um, rejected. So what makes Psalm 118, verse 22 to 24, so fun to study is it's just kind of this cool little mystery waiting to be unraveled. Remember the theme of Psalm 118 is the righteousness of God. So we would expect that the cornerstone and its rejection to be related to the goodness of the Lord, since that is the grand theme of the psalm. Unfortunately, Psalm 18 doesn't tell us who the cornerstone is. Hmm. I mean, Sherlock Holmes would be very disgruntled when he discovered no evidence at the scene of the crime. No evidence in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24, to tell us who this cornerstone is. Thankfully, we have inspired commentary for our text because it's quoted four times in the New Testament. And that's where we find out who the cornerstone is. So if you want to, you can turn to Matthew chapter 21 in the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, which is the first place that we find the cornerstone mentioned. Matthew 21, starting verse 33. In the parable, we are told in verse 33 that this owner plants a vineyard. He rents it out to the vine growers. He goes on a journey. The owner is God the Father. The laborers in the vineyard are the leaders of Israel who are responsible to take care of God's vineyard, the nation Israel. In verses 35 to 36, when the laborers, the leader of Israel, fail to care for the vineyard, Israel, the owner, God, sends his servants, the prophets, to exhort the vine growers to faithfully care for the vineyard, spiritually shepherd the people of Israel. However, the builders, 
the leaders of Israel abuse and kill the servants or the vine growers kill the servants. And verse 37, finally, the owner, God the Father, sends his own son, Jesus Christ, to the vine growers, the leaders of Israel, thinking that they are going to respect his son. It was Jesus, obviously. And verses 38 through 9, though convinced the son jesus christ was sent by the owner god they see it as an opportunity to take over the vineyard israel for themselves and so they kill the son jesus christ so it's very easy to see what the this parable is talking about jesus then asked the religious leaders he is speaking to a question what should be done to these wicked vine growers and he basically sets it up so that they condemn themselves because the religious leaders have no idea that they are the vine growers in the parable up to this point and with righteous indignation they tell jesus if you look in verse 41 that the owner god should bring those wretches to a wretched end and jesus gets them to pronounce their own judgment and when jesus interprets the parable he quotes the first two verses of our text in verse 42 the stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone this is the lord's doing it is marvelous in our eyes matthew then comments on and verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, or heard him, his parable, they understood he was speaking about them. And then they sought to seize him. They feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. This also appears in Mark 12 and Luke 20. Thus, in the parable of the vine growers, where our text is quoted, the vineyard is Israel, the laborers, the vine growers, or the leaders of Israel. The owner is God, the servants of the prophets, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone which the builders reject. They kill him. More specifically, if you turn over to Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4, we have another occurrence, and this one here is very clear. It's, you know, the church is just getting underway. Um, there's, uh, uh, in the near preceding context of Acts 3, Peter is, uh, has healed a very well-known beggar who kind of used to hang around the temple. He's been lame from his birth. And uh, so there's all this hubbub about the healing of the lame man that everybody knew and knew he was lame for many years and saw him there week after week. And in Acts chapter 4, verses 8 through 12, Peter is defending himself before the Jewish leaders because of all the commotion caused by the healing of the lame man. And we read in verse 8 of Acts 4, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Verse 11, he, Jesus, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone stone and there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved now here we have a very clear reference to psalm 118 psalm 19 our text is quoted and 
Jesus is specifically called the stone, which was rejected, the chief cornerstone, and they, you, the leaders of Israel, are referenced as the builder. So we have this inspired commentary on our text, but that's not all. In Ephesians 2.20, the Apostle Paul speaks of the church as God's household and says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8, also explicitly says Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. And so that tells us very clearly what Psalm 118 is talking about. So we have solved our first mystery. The chief cornerstone is Jesus, and the builders are the leaders of Israel. Okay, back at our text, Psalm 118. Look at verse 23. Know what the Lord did. Know what the Lord did. And in verse 23, we read, this is the Lord's doing. And look at the beginning of verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. What is the Lord's doing? What is the day the Lord has made? What do the two thises refer to in verse 24? Now, whenever you see the word this, these, that, and those, and I hate to get geeky on you here a little bit, it won't be too painful. These are called demonstratives. We use them all the time. And normally, when we're speaking of something far away from us, we speak of that singular thing or those plural things that are away from us, but when we're speaking of things that are near us, it's this singular thing or these things that are close to us. So they're called near demonstratives or far demonstratives. Here we have these two near demonstratives. This is the day the Lord has made. This is the Lord's doing. And they refer back to the nearest thing mentioned in the context, what is called the nearest antecedent, or the thing that is most near that is being referred to, the builders rejecting the chief cornerstone. Selah. We get this. But why would the Lord bring about the rejection of his own son, the chief cornerstone? Notice verse 22 says, the stone which the builders rejected. Hmm. But verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. And verse 24 says, this is the day the Lord has made. Well, how can that be? What's going on here? Did the builders reject the chief cornerstone or did God do it? And the answer is yes. Both the builders and God did it. The doctrine that describes what is happening in our text is called the doctrine of concurrence. And let me just give you a little crash course in the doctrine of concurrence because I bet most of us in the last month have never said that. It's kind of a weird little doctrine that relates to the sovereignty of God, but when understood, it is so comforting and it unravels a lot of texts that at first are like this where they seem to contradict each other first the bible says that god is perfectly absolutely and comprehensively sovereign for instance psalm 115 verse 3 but our god is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases that's about as sovereign as you can get second god is working everything in the universe to accomplish his perfect plan God's perfect plan is referred to as his decree. 
which encompasses everything that will ever happen. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Notice here that God is working all things. And that word all in the Greek means all every each. It means exactly what it says. He works all things after the counsel of his will. We know Romans 8, 28. It's a comforting verse. We know that God causes all things. Things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the doctrine that describes God orchestrating all the events after the counsel of his will to bring about his will is called the doctrine of providence. So providence is the queen and governess of the world. It is God orchestrating all the events to bring about his perfect decree. Now, have you ever looked at one of those grandfather clocks with all the gears in them? Have you ever noticed that some of the gears are small and some of them are big? Some of them are moving pretty fast to the right. Some are moving slow to the left. I mean, they're all going at different speeds and they're all different sizes, but they all forward the motion of the hand just right. That's kind of how God's providence works in the world there are things that are contrary to god and things that are for god things moving fast things moving slow in all these different directions but they all forward god's perfect plan this is the doctrine of providence and there are big things and there are little things in the world but in all of it god is sovereignly accomplishing his will working his will and his creation Listen to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10, where Isaiah writes, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east and a man of purpose from a far country, truly I've spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. You know, hear, hear. God accomplishes all his will through providence, all his good purpose, guiding all things in creation to accomplish his sovereign decree. And here's the mind blower. Here's the mind blower. You might want to just hold on to your head here so it doesn't explode and kill the person next to you. God gives men, angels, demons, Satan, certain freedoms that they can exercise their will even contrary to his revealed will, and yet he can still accomplish his perfect plan, an all-encompassing decree. Now, if you think about that, it creates a little paradox. How can God accomplish his decree if men and demons go against his revealed will? God does it through providence. He, he orders all events in creation so that they accomplish his decree, but think with me now, just follow me now. We are getting into some pretty heady stuff, right, just this second here, but I, I, if you just get it, it will give you comfort. God's sovereignty is his position as ruler of all creation. 
God's decree is his perfect plan formed before the foundation of the world for how he's going to do things. God's providence is his actively working in his creation to bring about his sovereign plan. So you have, in short, the position of authority, God's sovereignty, the plan for everything, God's decree, how God makes sure his plan comes to pass, providence. One more step. Within providence, within the doctrine of providence, there is another doctrine that describes how God is able to accomplish his perfect decree while at the same time giving his creatures freedom to rebel against his revealed will. And what doctrine is that? The doctrine of concurrence. And as the name implies, two or more things happening at the same time, concurrently, simultaneously. God allows men and demons to oppose his will, revealed will, but at the same time, concurrently, God is able to accomplish his absolute decree, his perfect plan. Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24 in our text is one such example. Psalm 118, men are sinning against God, and yet at the same time, God is accomplishing what he has decreed. The builders, the leaders of Israel, reject the most important stone in the building, the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And though the rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel was sinful, God is accomplishing his decree, his perfect plan to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for sins to make redemption for us so that we can be saved. While men were arresting and abusing and trying to crucify the Son of God while they were sinning in all of these ways, at the same time, concurrently, God was making a way of salvation and demonstrating His greatest act of love for mankind. You remember the story of Joseph who was sold into slavery by his brothers? You remember when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers in Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8, several times he says to his brothers, you sold me here. And did they? Yes. And several times he also says, and you did not send me here, but God did. Well, which is it? Yes. Yes, out of jealousy, evil, envy, spite, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. And at the same time, concurrently, God, through providence, out of love, wanting to save his people of Israel from the famine and build them into a great multitude so that he could make them a nation, was also guiding Joseph to become ruler of all Israel. Both were happening simultaneously you know you meant evil against me joseph says to his brothers in genesis 50 but god meant it for good in order to bring about this present result in acts chapter 2 verse 23 peter speaking of jesus death says and just listen carefully here this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of god you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Well, who was it that killed Jesus, the Jews or God? Both. Both. Remember, it was the Lord who was pleased to crush him, put him to grief, Isaiah 43 or 53. Peter later says in Acts chapter 3 verse 18, "But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Wow. 
The death of Christ was prophesied as far back as Genesis 3.15, and God has fulfilled it. But Peter goes on to say in Acts chapter 4, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, here it is, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. That is the doctrine of concurrence. Yes, the leaders of Israel rejected their own Messiah. The builders rejected the chief cornerstone. Yes, they paid Judas to betray him. And yes, they paid false witnesses to lie about him. Yes, they beat him and the Romans scourged him and crucified him. But at the same time, concurrently, God was orchestrating all of it. But why? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice God is the one who gave his only begotten son to save those who would believe. We, now we know what our text means when it says, this is the day the Lord has made. This is the Lord's doing. It does not mean, be happy today because God made it. Though that's true, that's not what this text is saying. A specific day is being referenced. The day we are to rejoice and be glad in is the day the chief cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the sovereign decree and plan and providence and concurrence of God, was rejected by the builders, the leaders of Israel, and why should we rejoice in it? We don't rejoice in the sinful actions of wicked men. We don't rejoice in their having rejected and crucified the sinless Son of God. But we rejoice and are glad in what the Lord was doing and what the Lord accomplished in sending his son to die on the cross concurrently when evil men were sinning against God. Third, know why the Lord did what he did. So we've already let the cat out of the bag here and answered the question briefly. We learned about God's position as a sovereign, his plan or decree that he accomplishes plan through providence and that an aspect of providence is God giving freedom to men and angels to actually go against his will and yet he can still accomplish his perfect plan. But let's consider in a little more detail why the Lord both decreed and allowed the builders, the leaders of Israel to reject the cornerstone, the chief stone, Jesus Christ. While the greatest sin in the history of the world was being perpetrated by mankind, at the same time, simultaneously, concurrently, the greatest demonstration of God's love for mankind was being accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. I mean, that's one of these say law, pause and meditate on it. Jesus, by doing what he did by giving himself into the hands of evil men by dying on the cross satisfied his own holy justice against sin so that anybody who believes in him alone for salvation can be forgiven, justified, sanctified, redeemed, adopted, and receive the free gift of eternal life at Jesus' expense because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And that is just amazing. We can extract two lessons concerning the day which the Lord has made this day, Psalm 118, 22 to 24. First, don't reject the chief cornerstone. This is obvious. The Jewish leaders rejected their own Messiah, Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. 
Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Remember, at the end of the parable of the labors in the vineyard, which we surveyed, Jesus gives this warning at the end as a punchline to the main focus of the parable. Don't reject the cornerstone. Jesus quotes our text. He warns, and he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever falls, it will scatter him like dust. Reject the cornerstone, you will fall, and then the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, will crush you and shatter you like dust. And so the question is, do you know the Lord? Have you repented of your sins? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If not, you are like the wicked vine growers, like the builders. For you are right now rejecting the cornerstone as your Savior and Lord. You will be, in the words of the Jewish leaders, brought to a wretched end, broken in pieces, scattered like dust, unless you repent. So don't delay. Receive Christ. Believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your Master, your King, your Redeemer, your Friend, or Jesus will fall on you in holy justice. If God is right now awakening you from your spiritual deadness, if you're feeling convicted and saying, man, maybe I don't know the Lord, maybe, you know, I'm pretending to be a Christian, you know, I have this secret life of sin and I've never really followed the Lord and I don't read my Bible and I don't like praying, listen, you are drowning in the sea of your own sinfulness. The lifeline of God's grace is held out to you. Jesus Christ says, believe in me and I will save you. I will rescue you. Look to Christ and be saved from the coming storm of his justice. Abandon all this world offers for Christ. And secondly, marvel at what the Lord has done. Look at the latter half of verse 23. It is marvelous in our eyes. The it refers to the Lord's doing. At the beginning of verse 23, the Lord's doing refers back to verse 22. The builders rejected the chief cornerstone. Marvel and be astonished and be shocked. Be in awe of what God has done to rescue you from your own sin. He was pleased to crush his son for you. He gave his son for you. The just for the unjust in order to bring us to God. Christ was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit for you. If you repent of your sins, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, you get all things. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, Ephesians 1.3. God planned to have the leaders of Israel reject and kill Jesus Christ so we guilty, undeserving sinners could be saved by his grace. Then just marvel at that. It's just, it's just incomprehensible. In Exodus 3.3, Moses marveled at the burning bush. In 1 Chronicles 16, 12, it tells us, marvel at the Lord's wonderful deeds and judgments. In Psalm 105, verse 5, remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. Marvel of marvel is God out of love for unworthy sinners who hate him, who were his enemies, who would not come to him, who could not please him, who were spiritually dead, him saving them, adopting them. I mean, amazing love, how can it be that God, my God, would die for me? That is so amazing. Fourth, know your proper response. Finally, look at the end of verse 24. We are told 
to be glad in the day the Lord has made. Let us, goes on to say, be glad in it. The entire response to Jesus' death at the hands of the leaders of Israel is to be glad in the day Jesus was rejected and crucified for our sins. Because while all hell and wicked men were arrayed against the sinless Son of God, concurrently, at the same time, God was doing what is best and most loving for us in making a way of salvation through Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross. We read Luke's or Luke's recording of what Peter said earlier in Acts 4, but it's so exactly what our psalm, our text is about in Psalm 118, that for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that covers everybody, to do whatever your hand predestined to occur. The rejection of the cornerstone, the chief stone, Jesus Christ was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It is the day the Lord has made. And we need to rejoice in the day Jesus was rejected and made perfect atonement on the cross. Now I just want to warn you, now that we've gone through this, <laughs> you're going to hear people misquote this text all the time. Don't jump down their throat. <laughs> Be nice to them. <laughs> I mean, they're, they've, you know, it's true. God has created every day, and every day is a good day of rejoicing. But it's great to know the really great day of rejoicing is the day that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the day we should be glad in. So know that the chief cornerstone, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Know the builders are the religious leaders of Israel who rejected and stumbled over the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Know why the Lord brought about the rejection, the crucifixion of his own son, which is so you and I could be saved by his incredible and amazing grace. And be warned, do not reject the cornerstone. Marvel at God's sovereign providence and concurrence. Rejoice in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and be glad that Jesus Christ died to save unworthy sinners. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word, thankful for this text. Lord, there's other things in Psalm 118 that are so amazing too that we didn't have time to get to. We see following this text, Jesus discussing um, or, or it discussing Jesus' triumphal entry when uh, people both in the Kidron Valley and again when they got up on the Temple Mount cried out, Hosanna, and the highest blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Father, it is amazing just to see how you would give a psalm, have David write a psalm like this, and yet you can't really tell by the context whether it's just speaking of David or, or, or what. We're thankful for the inspired commentary in the New Testament. We're thankful for those New Testament authors which referred to our text. 
and made it very clear that our text is speaking of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. May we not reject him and may we praise you and glorify you and be glad and marvel that you have sent your son to die for us on the cross. We're thankful for all of that in Christ's name. Amen.